You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm Dr. Daniel Line, president of the ACAAI, an association of 4,000 allergy health providers dedicated to enhancing the care of our patients through education and research. For the first time in 10 years, the guidelines for asthma management have been significantly updated. With advice on the diagnosis of adult and childhood asthma, as well as treatment and medications, the new guidelines aim to achieve optimal asthma control for every patient. What have we learned in the past decade to bring about these updates, and how will they translate to the exam room? Joining me today to discuss the new guidelines is Dr. Stuart Stoloff, a family practitioner from Carson City, Nevada, and a member of the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program's Expert Panel 3 responsible for the new set of asthma management guidelines. Dr. Stoloff brings to us a unique position as both a primary care physician who has a large clinical practice, as well as being a well-known world expert on asthma. Welcome, Dr. Stoloff. Thank you, Dr. Well, one of the things the new guidelines to think about is how long did this process take for you guys? Three and a half years, a little over three and a half years. Okay. What did it entail? It entailed reviewing approximately 25,000 abstracts initially, honing them down. We took as a foundation for the writing of the document, the 1997, in other words, Expert Panel 2 report. From Expert Panel 2 report, the way we set up the Expert Panel 2 report, of which I was part of, we envisioned and developed the sections which we moved as the foundation in order to do the Expert Panel 3 report. There had been an update to the Expert Report 2 that were released in 2002, which was answering five questions. But it was requested from the Institute that a full rewrite of the report be made. So we used as the foundation the 1997 document, looked at the 2002 materials and the other reports that we put out during the interim, and moved into the third report. In spite of this, the amount of work was far more demanding than any of its predecessors. So while we had a couple more individuals than we had in the update from 2002, because the group had dropped down to 11, the addition of the five to six, I believe, additional members did not make a significant impact for each of us from the point of work. It just helped carry a very burdensome load. Well, as you look at these new guidelines, and certainly they are evolving from the ones from 1997 or the expert panel too, what is new in the current guidelines? What's really new is the foundation, the framework. We talk about two concepts. The concepts are severity and control. In 1997, when we further identified the ways to look at classify this severity concept, we realized as we looked at how it evolved from the time of 1997. We identified that people were not fully grasping what we were writing about. And more importantly, they were reassigning a severity classification each time the patient came in, whether they were doing well or not doing well, but they were saying, oh, you're no longer mild, you're moderate, or you're moderate, now you're mild. We realized this really doesn't help in the construct of chronic disease management. So using the framework of looking at diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and these three major diseases that affect a very, very large population. What is it in them that people always move towards? What do primary care 
physicians and other healthcare providers talk about. We talk about impairment and risk. So what we looked at was the foundation of using that framework of a chronic disease model and moving into another chronic disease, being asthma. So severity is determined at the time you initially see the person. And they may already be on therapy, or if they're not on therapy, it's a little easier from a controller medication point of view. But once you start therapy, everything revolves around gaining and maintaining control. Now, how does that affect impairment and risk? Well, guess what? To determine severity of disease, you use these two domains, impairment and risk. They are the bridges between severity and control. When you look at control in our diagrams, you see impairment and risk and they cross between the two. Those are some of the main constructs which are very unique. Additionally, we moved in the very young children into three age classifications and viewing them differently. We realized in zero to four, the types of medications we would use are different than in age five to 11 or in 12 and above. Most studies in the country on medications have always been done until recently in age 12 and above. So that was not as affected as much but below the age of 12, we needed a way to discern what's the evidence. And the whole process for a very long time has been grounded in evidence-based medicine. So using that construct, we began to look in the literature. What could we really garner? And that's when we came up with the idea of 0 to 4, age 5 to 11, and 12 and above. And I think taking those age groups, combining with the constructs, of seeing severity as only a starting point and control as the key, the key message, that we've been able to transcend from a higher positioning into a reality-based care process. And I think that really is where the movement is going. Let's take these concepts of control and severity. In the past guidelines, as you mentioned, you were labeled mild, moderate, or severe, and that was the end of it. Really, this new construct, adding control, my opinion, perhaps a lot of people who are taking care of asthma find that to be much easier. It's easier maybe to understand whether you're in control. It's an easier concept, and it may be easier to implement. What do you think about that? I totally agree. That's what we on the panel thought would be the probable outcome. And it isn't just the panel. I mean, our, our panel is made up of individuals who are perceived as experts. Additionally, speaking to our colleagues in other countries, to people involved in the GINA. When you look at their report, they don't even talk about severity now. They just talk about control. The reality is this idea, this concept, had some of its early, early writings quite a few years ago. But putting it together was part of the task that took more time. And then the length of time, which was considerable time, is something based upon the amount of the volumes of literature come out, that the care you need to take in reviewing each of the papers necessitated the long length of time from the initiation of the process to the completion of process in late August and approval from the Institute. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Caton Schaff, and today I'm speaking with an expert panelist responsible in part for the new asthma guidelines, Dr. Stuart Stoloff. Now, Dr. Stoloff, I've heard you speak in the past about using the guidelines as a signpost or a roadmap, if you will. What do you mean by that? We provided a way to look at a disease. Guidelines, the way I tell patients, the way I tell colleagues, 
really at the meetings that we all attend. A guideline similar in a way to a car, but I'm not the person driving the car. I'm not the gasoline in the car. I'm not the road you drive on. I'm actually the signs along the road giving you a choice, whether you're going to Indianapolis or Muskegee or to Milwaukee. I help give you direction, but you get to make the choice. That's what a guideline's meant to do. It's meant to diminish the variability of practices based upon the best quality of evidence to support the recommendation. And that's the signpost that this document is. This document really breathes. It has a life. It comes to life when you start to think as the person well-controlled, not well-controlled, or very poorly controlled. How do I make that decision? I make that decision based upon impairment, looking at that domain, and risk. Now, as you look at that, this idea that it's a guidepost, if you will, or, or signs, I think that's a very important point because many people look at guidelines and somewhat back off from it because they're afraid that it's going to tell them, it's going to prescribe. And I think as you explain it, it maybe makes it much more of a living document for our patients every day. I agree with you, Caden. We're trying to get people to understand that there are ways that, based upon the evidence, you can help your patient improve their care. And that's what is in this document. It says, hey, if you really look at the evidence, this is the quality of evidence. This supports that recommendation. But you get to make the choice. You and the patient get to make the choice. Well, highlight how you think physicians should be using these guidelines. I believe, based upon their level of knowledge and expertise, they may use them in a more structured fashion. Or they may begin to understand the, what the wealth of information is in the document. For instance, if you're dealing with a child from zero to four years of age, and you're about to tell the parent that that child has persistent asthma, be it mild, moderate, or severe, you have not ever put the child on medication. Well, first of all, in the past, we really did not have a great deal of evidence to give you a predictive value of when someone who wheezes frequently is probably an asthmatic versus a wheezer related to a viral infection or infections. Based upon what's in the literature at the present time, we have some very strong, founded, evidence-based knowledge to help us make that decision. Using that, the recommendation would be looking at the literature, now down to very young ages, for the use of inhaled corticosteroids. The word steroids in some people is of concern. But once you explain that, then the question is, well, what of these steroids has been ever tried in studies and has support for its use in studies? Well, it turns out only two of the available pharmaceutical agents at the present time have been studied in zero to four years of age. So then how would you know that otherwise? You wouldn't. If you look in the document, we fully explain it. We list it. We give the quality of evidence to support it. Well, if I need to give more, what's the evidence about giving more of a medication? We even talk about there, the limited evidence. So this is a reference. I don't expect every physician and healthcare provider in this country to carry around or have on their desk the asthma guidelines. There were 418 pages. 74 pages for the executive summary. I mean, it's a long document, but it's a reference. And all the references that were used are in it. And we only put the ones in it that were really of practical value. 
So I feel that this becomes a source, a technological source, that can be in the future used in many different manifestations to support the needs of the clinical community that we practice in. Well, I want to thank you, Stuart, and I want to thank you for uh, coming on and talking about the guidelines, giving us a little depth as to what went into developing them. And I think most important in what you said is taking it from the academic level and the vast amount of research that you reviewed down to the clinical level that we can all help our patients. So I want to thank our guest, Dr. Stuart Stoloff, for discussing the design and the exam room impact of the new asthma guidelines with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit www.acaai.org.